0: Amen. Amen. Sounds like Brother Wayne's read the book of Hebrews recently. There's there's a lot of good stuff that we're going to cover over this uh, series there in that prayer. Uh, Let me first introduce the series to you, then the sermon, and we'll dive into verse 1 here. First, this is a first for me. There is, I want you to know this, just as a Christian who studies your Bible, there's a lot of different types of literature in this book. This book that we venerate, hold up as the center of life. It's where we derive all truth, everything we need for life and godliness. There's a lot in there. There are narratives in history. Sometimes it's just wisdom. It's the Proverbs and Ecclesiastes where the writer is saying, even unbelievers, if they just follow God's wisdom, do things God's way, things go better for them. There's poetry and songs and the Psalms. And then here, the almost half of the New Testament is letters, epistles that somebody writes to a church. And ever since I've been able to teach the Bible, preach the Bible regularly, I have never tried to preach an epistle. I gravitate towards stories. I love telling you the Bible stories. They're the best stories in the world. A lot of other stories in antiquity actually are derivative of Bible stories because we have the best stories. So I I gravitate towards telling you Ruth's story and Esther and then going to the Gospel of Acts and telling the story of the early church and then Jesus' stories and the Gospel of Mark. That's my last four series over the last several years. I love dialogue and setting and teaching you a, a story and characters. Letters are very different and I think this one has a lot to tell us that we need to know, especially with some logical flow coming out of what I just taught. We just came through the Gospel of Mark, or week after week. We gazed on Jesus. We looked at Jesus and what his, his life and ministry was. In the book of Hebrews, in large part, is going to be someone, decades later, looking back on Jesus' life and reflecting on all the meaning of it. So almost a logical flow. We talked about Jesus. Now we're going to study somebody who is reflecting back on him just a few decades later. I think it's not unlike what Pastor Doug is doing in the Law and Gospel series where we, we come through Revelation and see Jesus is reigning. And so we go take a look at a time when, when God was, was reigning. So there's some logical flow to what we're doing. I hope you'll see it. I want you to know about this book's first audience as well. This book is for you. It's for you to to, to benefit from. We're going to benefit from it these five weeks. But it wasn't first written to us. The first audience this was written to was believing converted Jews. They have believed on Jesus as their Messiah. that, That was guaranteed, that was promised, was prophesied of for centuries. They've believed on Jesus. And now they're struggling mightily. We actually see their story in the book of Acts where the first people to convert to Jesus were Jews. They were waiting for their Messiah, and these Jews believed, all right, this Jesus, he's he's Messiah. And as that happened there in Jerusalem, the Jewish authorities started making it very hard for them. And so we see in the book of Acts, these believing Jews just start spreading out, spreading out, we might call it the diaspora of the Jews. And now this writer is coming along and saying, listen... I know you guys probably had some expectations. You thought the Messiah was coming, you believed in him, and you thought things were going to just march on from here and it was going to be easy. And instead, you're now experiencing some hard times. You're experiencing some hard temptations. Now you're hearing from apostles and getting some hard teachings. And you're really struggling with this following Jesus thing. And so he is urging a, a people who are following Jesus and struggling, he's urging them, keep going, don't give up. Don't give up on Jesus. That audience experience, I suspect, will have some relevance and some resonance with us. There's different amounts of experience in this room in following Jesus. A lot of us have been doing it for a long time. We have some younger converts. But we might be at a maturity level sometimes where we think, shouldn't life be easier? Shouldn't following Jesus be easier? And then our, our jobs or our relationships at our jobs or raising our kids or our marriages or our financial relationships or physical hardships, sickness, losing people we love. Stuff happens and we, we start to struggle. We think this following Jesus thing, man, it, shouldn't it be a little easier than this? And because of that, I want, I want to go through this book of Hebrews to urge you to let this writer urge you. Don't give up. Keep going. Keep going after Jesus. One writer, I did, this is not original to me, one writer of, of writing about Hebrews said this, I thought it was quite clever, that in our churches we'll sing the line, Temptations lose their power when thou art nigh, or we'll sing the line, The things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. But for these believers, and sometimes for us, those don't seem true. Temptations are super powerful. And it's not just that the things of the earth aren't growing strangely dim. Sometimes we look at the things of earth and it is flashing bright red at us that there are some real alarms. And so it is into their world where they were struggling and sometimes in our world where we do that this writer wants to say to us, don't quit, stick with Jesus, which leads us to the themes of the book and then we'll get started. The theme of the book. Actually, Wayne already did like half of them already in that (laughs) prayer. The theme of the book. It's Jesus is better and Jesus is greater. Whatever thing you are counting on, your good works, your family name, your your lineage for them, prophets and priests, and counting on sacrifices, whatever you are counting on, or whatever you think is going to bring you pleasure out there, uh, a name and renown, some money, a partner, some pleasures, whatever you think is going to get it. Jesus is better. Jesus is greater. Grab on to him. Don't grab on to anything else because I've noticed it this way sometimes. People would teach Hebrews and say the theme is faith. No, it's not. Faith is important in the book, but the object of the faith is what's most important. He's saying if you have faith in stuff and you just believe harder, that's not going to help you. You better have something worthwhile having faith in, and that's Jesus. Jesus is better than anything else you have faith in. Whatever is tempting you, grab on to Jesus. Whatever is trying you, grab onto Jesus. Whatever teaching is hard, grab on to Jesus. Hold to him. And so... Here's what we're going to do today. Before we even start this text, I want you to know where we're going because I don't want you to be lost at any point. Here's all we're about to do. Here's the outline. This writer is going to say, long ago, God talked to us in some ways. But now through Jesus, he's talked to us in a really compelling and clear way. And man, this Jesus, he's magnificent. Let me tell you about this Jesus. He was at the creation moment. He's one with the Father before all ages. Very God of very God. And we're going to marvel at Jesus for four verses. And then we're going to skip a bunch. I'll tell you why later. And then we'll go to chapter 2 where he says, Now, since we've marveled at Jesus and how great he is, he's going to be, and just today we're going to show, he's better than any of the prophets you had. He's better than any of the priests in sacrificial system that you had. He is better than than angels we're going to see. Because those things are true, then we just have some instructions. Because we know the magnitude, the majesty of Jesus, some instructions. So that's what we're doing today. Let's go. Let's read verse 1 again, only verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. You know, one clear quality of our God as we read through the Bible is that He communicates with His people, He wants us to know about Him. In theological circles, we have talked about that in the past as, first, something called natural revelation. He just gave us nature. And we look around, let's say, look to the skies, and the planets always run in order. Everything is good-ordered, and we just know whoever this God is, he's good. He loves order. He's in good order. We know that God loves beauty. He didn't make the world gray and drab and boring. He gave it compelling colors and changing leaves in the fall and incredible vistas and oceans and things to see. We know that God is order. We know that God loves beauty. We know that God loves variety. We still don't know all the species of everything that lives on this planet. And he thought of them all. Yeah. We can look out at nature and we can know some stuff about our God, but we have something better. Not just natural revelation, but what the theologians call a special or specific revelation. He also not just speaks with the bird that flies and the fish that swims and they're incredible. He also speaks. The writer specifies that in the past he spoke through prophets. But man, if we start reading back through the Old Testament, he spoke in lots of ways. He spoke as a voice in the Garden of Eden. As Abraham was about to sacrifice Isaac on Mount Carmel, he spoke as a voice... From heaven, he spoke to Joseph through his dreams, to Moses through a burning bush, from to Balaam through the mouth of a donkey. If you don't know that story in the Old Testament, you should read it today. It's very entertaining. He spoke in Daniel's day to a king, a king of a wicked empire. He spoke by a disembodied hand riding on the wall. For millennia, God has been speaking. And that's great news. The silent treatment is bad enough when it's among friends or amongst a family or spouses. That we don't experience that with God is such a blessing. He didn't have to tell us how to know him. He didn't have to reveal himself to us. But he has been speaking loudly for millennia because he desires for us to know him. What's the best way to get to know somebody? Listen to them talk. Ask them some questions. Listen to them speak. And he wants you to know him. And so he gives us a lot of talking, a lot of special revelation. And then he preserved it for us in this book. The writer then gives us this information that God speaks with time frames. He says, long ago, and at many times, God spoke through prophets, and now, now these days, he speaks something distinct. Verse 2. But in these last days, God has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Let's pause there for a second. These last days, he says, these are the ones we're in. It's the days after the revelation of his son. It's literally the thing that splits time in the Western calendar. Jesus' revelation is what makes us say B.C. and A.D. He's the centerpiece of time. Maybe a better translation of this is he has spoken to us in son. Almost like son is another language. Like he spoke to us in Spanish or spoke to us in German. Now God has spoken to us in son by revealing Jesus it is as if the prophets were one language and they are good. Jesus is a whole new language all together in his revelation. Now that is not to say that we in any way unhitch ourselves from the prophets. We affirm all of how God spoke in the previous days. We affirm Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and all of what we call the, those first five books of the, the Bible. We affirm the prophets and everything in our Old Testament. Those are good words from God. And we affirm this new thing that God did in revealing Jesus and having the Gospels written about him and then his apostles writing about him to other churches. We affirm both God speaking in old times and God speaking in the new times through Jesus. And I say that because that's the end of the list. We affirm God spoke in old times and he spoke in new times in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And now there's no more speaking because we don't need it. Now we have everything we need for life and godliness. I say that to you as a defense. Because somewhere in your feed, as you start scrolling, somewhere on your airwaves, and particularly this happens to a lot of your parents and grandparents as they get older and start to watch a lot of Christian TV. Or Christian TV. You're going to get somebody who says, I got a new word from the Lord, to which we say back, no, you don't. No, you don't. God spoke in one way this time, and now he speaks through Jesus, and he spoke through his apostles about Jesus. And no, 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 you don't have any new word. There's no new revelation. So let, let us glory in that Jesus and God has spoken to us four time in a new time. We have everything that we need to know. Next up. So he spoke spoke to us in these last days. That is all the speaking. Then he says, I love this, He is the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. We could pause on that and wonder on it for the next hour or so or more. Everything that is belongs to Jesus. He will inherit it. Think of the largest inheritances in the world. Gather them together, add them up. Get all the Saudi princes, get Bezos and Zuckerberg and Musk in a room and just gather all their money. And it is a pitiful, embarrassing pittance compared to what Jesus inherits. When Jesus returns, he inherits the Swiss Alps, the Sahara Desert, the Pacific Islands, ocean depths that we don't know yet, and galaxies and planets that we don't even know are out there. He inherits it all. It's all his, even more so. Everything that is that he inherits, this this writer tells us, God created it through Christ. It's through him that all things are made. You know, here, we get impressed by people who make things. I know I do. I get impressed by architects and engineers who can make something. I'm really impressed with business owners and entrepreneurs who make something work. I get really impressed. And we can talk about for hours great storytelling and and new music that has a new chord pattern we haven't heard or some lyrics that are truly compelling. And we should. We should be very compelled by the people who are making things because when they do, they image Christ. He's the maker of all things. And in His image, we make we make things and stories and music and art. We make those things as we image Him. But even the most incredible things we've made, the greatest stories we've told, the greatest songs we've written, it all compales in comparison to what He made. We're just using. We are making from what he created. He created vibration, so we can make music. He created color, so we could make paintings. He created the molecules that we use to do anything else. He is heir of all things. He is maker of all things. And the writer is making clear early this monumental claim about Jesus, especially to those early Jews, because those early Jews, their entire lives, would have gone to Genesis one one and said. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, Elohim created the, created the heavens and the earth. And now they're over here in Hebrews, echoing what John said in his gospel, and hearing, hold on. So this Jesus who walked around with us, you're putting him in Genesis 1? It was there at the beginning that through Jesus, God created all things? And the answer is yeah. That's how monumental and magnificent this Jesus is. The Father and the Son are distinct and one. That's hard. (laughs) The the Trinity is a mysterious, mysterious thing to talk about. The Father and Son are both distinct and one. We say it every week in our creed. He is one with the Father before all ages. Very God of very God. For that first Jewish reader here, that is revolutionary. That Jesus was at the moment of creation. Verse 3. He continues here just lifting up Jesus. He Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of God's nature, and Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. Amen. The, the writer here is giving you a very clever uh, a very, very very clever comparison to where he started with in the old days God talked to you through the prophets, and now he's talking about the universe being upheld by the word of his power. There's an implicit comparison here that jesus is better than the prophets in that the prophets gave god's word but jesus is god's word whatever you thought of the prophets jesus is so much better you need to think of him so high you're thinking him as creator god as you imagine the events of creation he calls him the radiance of the glory of god i want to give you an illustration here before i do give you a quick warning i mentioned a moment ago the, the trinity is, one, is probably the most mysterious doctrine, hardest to, 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 to understand. And for years, good-natured people have tried very hard to come up with analogies to explain the Trinity. We might have grown up on one that doesn't work, where there's, uh, there's water. And water can be steam, water can be liquid, and water can be ice. Uh, and that's what, that's what God and the Trinity are like. But that's not, that's not quite right. Another one I've, I've heard is the sun. The sun is there, it's a thing unto itself. But the sun produces heat, and the sun produces light, but light isn't heat, and heat isn't light, and light isn't the sun. And the, That one breaks down too. Now the illustration I'm about to give you might make you think, I'm endorsing the idea of the sun being a good example of the Trinity. I'm not doing that. I just want to talk to you about radiance, the idea of the radiance. We've been hanging out by the pool with Doug and Marley a lot this summer. And you'll notice it today as we're out at Wayne's. It's hot, guys. And every... Every summer, it occurs to me at the beginning of summer, I don't know why I don't, uh, why it's, it seems new every summer. I get surprised that it's hot again. But I look up at the sun and go, that thing is 93 million miles away. And it is somehow making me intensely miserable right here in East South South. <laughs> like, I am literally, I'm, I'm this little being down here and I'm experiencing the direct effects of that, way up there, 93 million miles away, and it's very present with me. And in some ways, that's the idea of radiance. When you look at Jesus, the effects he has here on this earth, you're looking at the same substance as God, the maker of all things. He's the radiance of the glory of God. And then he calls him the exact imprint of his nature. That word imprint is often used in the New Testament to be associated with the idea of signet rings that kings would have. That in antiquity, a king would verify a document by putting his ring it'd be very intricate to some wax or another material. He'd seal a document, he'd seal a letter, and that would be from the king. And we're just showing here in the text, whatever Jesus does, he does with the same authority and the same power as God the Father. God the Father, God the Son, together before all ages, distinct, but of the same substance. I just want to pause on that to say it's, it's actually a very normal misunderstanding to think of them as fundamentally differently. This is this next part here is for everybody, but this is primarily for some younger folks. Because you're gonna, I think you're going to encounter what I'm about to tell you in your own reading of the scriptures, and I want you prepared. Or if you don't encounter it in your own reading of the scriptures, you're going to encounter it on YouTube or TikTok or someone who is skeptical of the faith. And so I want, to, I want this to be an environment always where if you've got trouble with something you're reading, you got trouble with something in the Scriptures that we're never scandalized or embarrassed at that. We want to take those on head on. There's always good answers. So let me just say out loud that the visions of Jesus in the Gospels and the visions of maybe even Revelation or God in the Old Testament, there's a temptation to think of them as really distinct. I'll give you one of my own struggles. So this is admitting my own struggle. We came through the book of Revelation and there was one part where Jesus is portrayed as coming to judge sin. And that he is going to punish for eternity with eternal torment the rebels against God the Father. That's a real image the Bible gives me. And I remember it wasn't, but just a few months before then the Gospel of Mark, it was my favorite story, where Jesus is getting he, a guy named J. Iris comes to Jesus and says to Jesus, My daughter is dying, I need you to come see her. And so he's on his way to see the girl and this woman with the 10-year issue of blood, 10 years of bleeding. And Jesus encounters her, heals her when she touches the hem of his garment. She goes, he goes on to the little girl, and he's so tender. She's already died and the phrase he uses is talitha kumi. It's, hey little one. It's, it's a term of endearment. Hey, hey little girl, come on. I struggle. Jesus coming to judge the quick and the dead. We say that every week. Jesus coming to judge the quick of the living. The living and the dead. And Jesus sweet and mild in the room with a little girl calling her back to life. It's A totally legitimate experience to see the Jesus picture in the Gospels and then to see the the law even preached as we do and go, these things don't – I'm having trouble putting these two things together, these two pictures. I'm telling you it's hard for me to hold them together. Those are hard to hold in tension. But I want to say really gently, very pastorally, very shepherd-like, it is imperative that – we affirm both it's imperative that we hold to the entire picture of god this is where it becomes very important to use the word but and not the word excuse me to use the word and and not the word but it's not god is imminent close compassionate and loving but he's also high holy and just it is god is imminent he's close he's compassionate he's loving he's merciful and he's high he's holy And he's just. And I'm just trying to recognize in myself gently, when I struggle with two things the Bible says, gently, here, there's no guilt trip on this. This is not what I want to call anybody to. I just, the problem isn't, I know the problem isn't the book. That problem is me. I'm just struggling with whatever previous assumptions I had, and now I have a good, patient God, to wrestle through all that. Tim Keller recently passed away. He pastored a church in New York City for almost over 30 years. And I think he said something useful here because that church was so ethnically diverse. I mean we're talking internationally diverse. And he said when people would move in to New York City from Hungary, from Turkey, from Jordan, from the United Arab Emirates, and they would encounter Christianity for the first time, he noticed that those people, they didn't struggle at all with a God who was high and holy and would judge sin, that's what they understood. That was just normal for where they came from in those countries. That was how God should be with these kinds, of, with that kind of law and that kind of judgment. What they struggled with was, hold on, your God put on a body? He dishonored himself so much he became like us? Your God dishonors himself like crazy. I just read... Keller talked about a conversation of someone reading through the Old Testament and seeing the people of Israel constantly fall away. And this guy's just saying, why doesn't your God just destroy them and start again? They've dishonored him so many times. They struggle with God's forgiveness. They struggle with understanding this God who is so forgiving. And it's just a product of where they lived and who they are. Listen, and I I do love, I'm not ever going to apologize for loving the compassion the, the love of God the forgiveness of God I love singing about it in here I love the, the mercy and the grace of God it's just because I, I grew up where I did and when I did that I then struggle sometimes when Jesus is coming back to judge everybody and, and sends rebels to hell so that's just my gentle call to you what we have here in some of these in, in these verses is he's God and Jesus Jesus is the imprint of God he's the radiance of God we hold in tension some of the different stories, but we just recognize that they're all good, they're all holy. God and Jesus are not, not saying one and the same, but of the same substance. I think I'll leave it there and just hit verse 4, just again by saying, young folks especially, when that happens, we'll work through that if you struggle with those or you know someone that does. Verse 4, After making purification for sins... Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. First, we just see there, after making purification for sins. Isn't that good news? Well, we just sang that this morning. Our sins are many. I know that's true of me. His mercy is more. The purification for sins is good news. But, second here, this writer is starting to preview... Another contrast. He's already said he's better than the priest because the priests gave God's word, but Jesus is God's word. And now he's saying Jesus sat down after making purification for sins. Here, the writer—we actually don't know who the writer is—the writer is comparing Jesus to the priests in the Old Testament, in the temple. Because for the priests, the work of the purification for sins never ended. When the Day of Atonement was done, we immediately know... We're going to have to do all that again. When the sacrifice for sins happens, the clock starts. We're going to have to do that one more time. In that way, the priests never sat down. Maybe one priest left, another priest came in, but the priesthood never got to sit down. The work of the purification for sins was always happening in the old system. It was never finished. And so for Jesus to sit down, the purification for sins is done. That work's been done, and we are set free from the curse of sin, That's a good feeling to get your work done and sit down. He did the best work of all, defeating sin and death and sat down. And then in verse 4, another comparison. So he's better than the prophets. He's better than the priests. And then he says here, he's much superior to angels. Al Muller, he's president of Southeastern Baptist Seminary, our flagship seminary in Southern Baptist life. He talked about this phrase in the next several verses. As... The experience when you walk into a, a store, a theme park, a restaurant, and you see a sign up and go, it's a weird, like maybe that, that sign is per- per- peculiar to you and you wonder, I wonder what the story is behind that sign? Why'd they have to put that sign up there? I had that experience a few years ago, I, I went to Coyote Coffee and Easley, and it was the first time I had ever seen a sign on the drive-thru window that said, please turn off your windshield wipers. And my very overactive imagination went, how oh, would that been funny to see? Like the origin story of that sign. Why do we have to put that up to keep the baristas dry? That's what this Al Mohler calls this verse something like that. Because we have no problem in here understanding that Jesus is not an angel. What's likely the case is the writer from this verse 4 all the way through verse 14. He is a very long lecture, diatribe, whatever you want to call it. About Jesus being better than the angels. Which tells us likely. In the early church, in those early Jews, they were apparently having a conversation about it. They didn't know what to do with this Jesus. He was walking around on earth, but he had the power over death. There was some kind of debate happening. Is Jesus created by God? Is he an angel? Is he just above the angels? There was a debate happening, and this writer just speaks into it. We now know the answers to those are no. Jesus is not created. He is eternal. He's not like an angel. Specifically here, he's uncreated, and he's much superior to angels. But that's also saying something important. You know, angels in the Bible, angels and demons, there's actually not a lot of content in the Bible about them. It's one of the reasons why, if you run into ministries that seem to really focus on angels and demons, I advise being wary of those because there's not a lot of content to work with. And it might tell us something about where we should focus our Bible study if there's not a lot of content to work with of angels and demons. But what we do know about angels is almost always (laughs) The first thing they say when they come on the scene is fear not, meaning the people that they appear to are scared. So something about the angels is they are, they are a fearsome group. Whatever they show up, they are causing fear because of their majesty. I think it was one of the most, most high-impact parts of the Revelation that stuck with me as we went through it. Was this four creatures that are going around the throne of God in the throne room. When you read them described, they are terrifying creatures. And then Jesus comes on the scene, and those things that would terrify me bow to Jesus. Jesus is better than all of the angelic beings. And that's in part uh, why I'm going to skip verses 5 through 14, because I think most of you know Jesus isn't an angel. And Jesus hasn't been created. Uh, He was one with the Father before all time. And so I'm not going to take you through that debate, because I think we've already had it in the Western church. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you a quick summary of what we've done. And then for just about 10-12 minutes, we're going to look at Hebrews 2, verses 1-3 and one through 3, to give us our application points. So let me give you a summary. We see here, God speaks. He spoke at one time through the prophets, but He has now spoken compellingly and clearly through Jesus. And this Jesus, He is God in the flesh. He's magnificent. Better than angels, better than prophets, better than priests. You might notice then, as we've gloried in how awesome Jesus is, there are no commands in chapter 1. There's nothing in chapter one to tell you what to do. And so that it starts in chapter two. It starts in chapter two. Now that we've settled these things, we know who Jesus is, speaking to this audience that is believing in Jesus but struggling because of hard times and hard temptations and hard teachings. Here are what the here, here are the, the items the writer of Hebrews gives to those people after magnifying Jesus. Verse 1 of chapter 2. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. That word therefore is going to show up in Hebrews several times, and it's a big flashing light to go, before I move on, let's make sure I I remember everything and I, I recognize everything I just read. So therefore, because these things are true of Jesus, pay close attention to what you've heard. Don't drift away from it. The first chapter of glorying in Jesus is designed to make the second chapter's commands easier. If you know the glory of Jesus, it's easy to pay attention to him. If you know the glories of Jesus, it's harder to drift from him. So two points here. One is don't drift. Two is pay, close, pay much closer attention. Number one, don't drift. Two, pay much closer attention. One, don't drift. That word could also be very well translated as Float. You imagine that if you are in a body of water with any kind of current and you aren't doing anything, if you just do nothing, you'll just go wherever the current takes you. And you should know that where you often go in a current, it's, it's dangerous, it can lead to destruction. You live in a current. The stuff that comes across your phone is a current. What's on your TV is a current. The attitudes and ideas at your workplace they are a current. And if you aren't, if you are not. On purpose, going in the right direction, you'll just float with those. You'll just float with whatever the world serves up. You'll just float with whatever the attitudes are. And the warning here is don't do that. Don't drift. Drift is the natural state of every human heart and every human institution. Our natural inclination is to drift. It's in the song we sing, Lord, I'm prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. I'm prone to leave the God I love. It takes no effort to leave the God we love. It's a natural inclination we will drift from him if we don't pursue him on purpose. I think a good biblical example of this is Peter. Peter gets a vision in the book of Acts that tells him that he should go to the Gentiles. And Peter is a lifelong Jew, so doesn't like the Gentiles. What we would call racism now, he had an ethnic prejudice towards the Gentiles. But God reveals to him you should go to the Gentiles. So he does that and he has great, great success in ministry there with the Gentiles. But then Paul writes later, I had to contend to Peter to his face because when when Paul came to where Peter was, Peter had drifted back to his old ways. Peter stopped talking to the Gentiles. His ethnic prejudice had come back up and he just started not eating with them. He ignored them and only went where the Jews went. And Paul said, I had to contend with him to his face over that. Listen, if Peter can drift, you can drift. If you are not going towards orthodoxy and right things on purpose, you will drift to the left or to the right. You will drift to the right and make just examples here. Your, your country, your idol, you'll drift to the left and reject all the Bible standards on sexuality. You'll drift one way or the other if you do not stay on the path. The, the illustration I like most for it is just keep your hand on the wheel. This last Thursday maybe... Uh, I got, got a text from my, from my wife that morning that says, hey, our power's out. And I find that outside of Doug Marley's house that somebody had drifted off the road, hit a utility pole, knocked out the power. And that's it probably was a, uh, like he was working with third shift, probably fell asleep at the wheel. He was fine, by the way. But if you don't keep your hand on the wheel, unless you have one of those new cars that keep you in the lines anyway, unless you keep your hand on the wheel, you're going to drift to the left or the right, and you're going to hit something. It's going to be destructive if you don't hold on to the wheel. It's universally true. I've said for years a lot of, to a lot of young people coming through the college where I work, nothing good or almost nothing good happens on accident. All the good things, take okay, hard work, discipline, intentionality, good things don't accidentally happen. You're taking care of your temple, your health will not accidentally get better. It will take you keeping your hand on the wheel and pursuing good habits. Your marriage won't just accidentally stay strong or get strong unless you're intentionally pursuing it. So I'm two days away from being, having been married for eight months, so I'm not an expert yet. But uh, I would also mention marriage is awesome. Young people, go after it um, with a godly spouse. Don't, like, d- don't delay. It's an awesome institution. It's God's best idea, the idea of marriage. But if you are not intentionally pursuing each other, if you don't have your hand on the wheel, you're going to drift going to take each other for granted and you're just going to go one way or the other if you don't get up and go towards the mark churches seminaries denominations the natural thing is to drift in one way or the other and it's never going to be more orthodox there are no denominations that got up one day no churches that got up one day and went i think i've accidentally found orthodoxy now you're only going to drift from unorthodoxy. You're only going to drift into what the world wants you to, to be, to conform to them. You're only going to drift towards your heart's desires. The drift is never good. So keep your hand on the wheel and go towards orthodoxy, go towards Jesus. And so then you might say, okay, drift sounds bad. I don't want to do that. I don't want to drift. How do I do that? How do I not drift? Well, that's in the text too. Verse 1, there, chapter 2, pay much closer attention. I know it's cliche around here, but it's all I got. I really only I only have so much, uh, only so much advice. If you're not going to drift, you need the disciplines of prayer, the disciplines of Bible reading, the disciplines of good preaching, not just the 40, 50 minutes you get here on Sunday mornings. You need the discipline of the fellowship of believers, not just the time you spend here talking with each other, but interacting throughout the week. If you don't want to drift, if you want to keep your hand on the wheel, that's what you need. Prayer, Bible consumption, preaching, fellowship of believers, that'll keep you from drift. Now it's worth me gently pushing on you here to ask, what are you giving your attention to? The, the, the charge here is pay much closer attention to what you have learned. So if we're not doing that, it's worth examining your own, your own budget for time and ask, what's getting my attention? Because the things you value and love, they'll get your attention. The things that we love, we know a lot about. And the charge here is, well, love your spiritual life a lot, your spiritual health. Take care of it by paying close attention to what you have, uh, to to what you've learned. I I will give a negative illustration of this for me. We're about two months from settling all the NFL rosters and who's going to be on them. But right now, I can probably give you 40 to 45 names who are going to be on the Dallas Cowboys roster. And there's only going to be 53 in the end. Like, I, I think I probably already know. I th- if you set me and Heath down for about 60 seconds, we could name the 30 or so guys that are going to make a big impact for the Clemson Tigers on Saturdays this week. And why do I know all that? Because I care about it. And so I gave it attention. And I would be ashamed to admit all that to you if I didn't also know I could give you lots of Bible stuff from this week and what I also consume. So there are things – I'm not saying don't give attention to your hobbies. Don't give attention to things that you love, but keep them in some kind of healthy proportion that – We don't give our hobbies and the things we love all of our attention and that we just neglect our spiritual health. This illustration is also from uh, Pastor Keller. I changed some of it just because uh, I think it makes it a little more flowery. He said he had a a man in his church. um, He's like a tough union dude from from Queens. He started coming to his church, and he said uh, that this guy who was coming to the church said, I can't do theology. It's too hard. I don't have the education for it. Like Getting into the Bible, I don't have the ability to do what you're doing. And you're urging me to get my Bible. You're urging me to learn. I, I can't do it. I don't have that ability. And Keller tells the story, well, this guy ends up, a couple months later, developing a really serious heart problem. And out of nowhere, this guy knows some big words. He's coming to talk to the pastor about his risk for pulmonary embolism. And how he's going to start taking an anticoagulant at this many milligrams per day. And how his warfarin is going to interact differently with all his other medications so that he can prevent having a procedure on his aortic valve. This guy learned a whole lot real quick about all things cardiac because it mattered to him. The guy who said, I don't have what it takes to learn theology. He learned heart medicine in like a week because it really, really mattered to him. I say that to some of you. Some of you do use your intellect towards your spiritual development. And I want to affirm that. I also just want to say to some of you who think you don't have that, the in, the intellect for it. You do. Everybody in this room, you could you could teach me something about what you really care about. And what you really care about, it is often intricate. It is often hard. And if you will apply that ability, that natural ability God has given you to the scriptures, to prayer, to spiritual development. You'll make progress. Don't drift. How do I not drift? Pay close attention to what you've learned. Final word here. Two or three more minutes. Verses 2 and 3. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Here's the reasoning. Here's the argument from the writer He's saying in former times, God spoke through angels, and those angels were reliable, and God's people often didn't listen to the angels. And so there was retribution, there was judgment when God's people didn't listen to the good word the angels brought. Now, if the angels brought a good word, now you got the word. Now you've got Jesus. He's greater, it's better, it's the clear word. Therefore, if there was retribution and there was judgment for those who didn't listen to the words from the angels, how much more will the retribution and judgment be for those who neglect Jesus? So we want to escape that retribution, escape that judgment, and you can do that. And not just stay in neutrality, you can do that and inherit a great salvation. is salvation great? being free from our sins, their powers over us, knowing that we will be reunited with everyone that we've lost who is in Christ. Our salvation is incredible. Let's not neglect our salvation by drifting away from what we have learned. So don't drift. How don't I do that? Pay attention, close attention to Jesus. And as you do that through the power of the Holy Spirit, we will escape judgment, we will escape retribution, and inherit the great salvation we have been offered. Looking forward greatly to getting through Hebrews here, if the Lord allows, for these next four weeks. And then when we're back up in the fall, let me pray for us as the band comes back up and we'll sing together. Lord, I pray that you'll bless this word as it was preached, that you would do a work in your people. That even even now, that there would be that gentle call to examination about where we put our time, where we put our attention. And that we would resolve, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to pay close attention to what you teach in your scriptures. To pay close close attention to what we learn here and what we learn from other gifted Bible teachers. Lord, help us not to drift. I do want the legacy of this place to be when, when I am old and gray. That I'll be able to see all of these young folks. Amen. All of these kids and then their kids. Yeah. Even if they're not in church here, they are solid Amen. believers leading other churches. Lord, let, I'm asking that. Don't let any one of us drift. Yeah. All those in this room, the 70 or so people in this room, no drift for us. Keep yeah. us in orthodoxy. Yeah. Keep us close to you. Help us to pay close attention so we don't have to lose a one of the people that we love. And then... Lord, help us to not neglect this great salvation, that we would inherit this good gift You've given us. Now, as we as we worship, as we respond, I ask that You to speak to Your people. Do whatever work You would have done in them. Bless the perfect word preached from an imperfect vessel, by giving us repentance, by giving us by giving us blessing of whatever You would give, and then bless our time around the table of the Lord in Jesus' name. Amen. Everybody stand together. We're sing our Jesus. I love to be one of the. Love the uh... I like it really much.